Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Algonquin Power and Utilities Corporation 2020 fourth quarter and full year earnings webcasting conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star then one on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star then zero. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Amelia Sang, Vice President, Investor Relations. Thank you. Please go ahead. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us this morning for our 2020 fourth quarter and year-end earnings conference call. My name is Amelia Sang, and I'm the Vice President of Investor Relations at Algonquin Power and Utilities. Presenting on the call today are Arun Banskara, our President and CEO, and Arthur Kasperzak, our Chief Financial Officer. Also joining us this morning for the question and answer part of the call will be Jeff Norman, our Chief Development Officer, and Johnny Johnston, our Chief Operating Officer. To accompany our, our earnings call today, we have a supplemental webcast presentation available on our website, AlgonquinPowerAndUtilities.com. Our financial statements and management discussion and analysis are also available on the website, as well as on CEDAR and EDGAR. Before continuing the call, we would like to remind you that our discussion during the call will include certain forward-looking information, including but not limited to our expectations regarding future earnings and capital expenditures and the expected impact and outcomes of the recent uh, severe winter storms in Texas and the central U.S. At the end of the call, I will read a notice regarding both forward-looking information and non-GAAP financial measures. Please also refer to our most recent MDMA filed on CEDAR and EDGAR and available on our website for additional important information on these items. On our call this morning, Arun will provide an overview of our Q4 and full year 2020 performance. Arthur will follow with the financial results, and then Arun will conclude with an update on our strategic plan for the business. We will then open the lines for questions. I ask that you restrict your questions to two and then requeue if you have any additional questions to allow others the opportunity to participate. And with that, I'll turn it over to Arun. Thank you, Amelia, and a very good morning to those who've been able to join us on this call and online. Given that this is our year-end earnings call, I want to provide some highlights and speak to performance, both financial and operational for 2020. Firstly, on financials, I'm pleased to report steady year-over-year -year growth in our key financial metrics. 2020 adjusted EBITDA of $869.5 million increased 4% year-over-year, and our 2020 adjusted net earnings per share of $0.64 cents compares to $0.63 cents reported last year. There were three particular events, COVID, weather in the central region, and delayed closing of Delco that impacted our results. Despite these, 
management was able to pull a number of levers, including cost savings, to continue our growth trajectory. We exited the year with $13.2 billion in assets, a 21% increase over last year. Secondly, in terms of shareholder value creation, we continue to generate consistent outstanding returns as proven by our record on delivering total shareholder returns. In 2020, the company delivered total shareholder returns of 21.5% on the New York Stock Exchange compared to the 22.7% for the utility index and 15.3% for the S&P TSX capped utilities index. Last year, we reported annual dividends per share of 61 cents, which represents a 10% annual increase for the 10th consecutive year in a row. Thirdly, on operations, the company undertook many successful growth initiatives and achieved numerous milestones in 2020. We continue to focus our efforts on Algonquin's three strategic pillars, growth, operational excellence, and sustainability. For those of you who may have participated at our virtual investor day in December, we discussed this at length. We operate through two businesses, regulated and renewables. What is unique about us are our multiple levers of growth that support our two businesses and which gives us high confidence in delivering outstanding returns. One lever of growth is acquisitions, and we completed two utility acquisitions in 2020, ESAL and Ascendant. With the addition of these two utilities, Algonquin now has over one million customer connections within our regulated footprint. Additionally, both acquisitions are expected to provide opportunities for future growth. With New York American Water, we submitted our regulatory application to the New York PSC last year. We are currently going through the settlement process and the hearing date is scheduled for mid-May. We continue to expect this transaction to close in 2021. On the renewable energy business, the company made its largest renewable energy acquisition, acquiring a 51% ownership interest in a portfolio of three operating coastal wind facilities with a combined generating capacity of 621 megawatts in South Coastal Texas. These three wind facilities have already achieved commercial operations. The acquisition of a 51% interest in a fourth 240 megawatt South Texas coastal facility is expected to occur in the first half of 2021 once the facility reaches commercial operations. We continue to prove out our CNI growth lever as Algonquin remains very well positioned in the CNI space where important long-term customers are supporting renewables growth as they are looking to achieve their own sustainability goals. As further proof of concept, we signed a framework agreement with Chevron last year for the potential development of over 500 megawatts of renewable energy facilities. This has been an area of focus for us, and we are working hard 
to progress that portfolio and expand our customer base. 2020 also marked the company's largest construction program in our history, with approximately 1,600 megawatts of renewable energy projects under construction. To put that in context, these new projects approximately doubled the amount of our overall renewables portfolio. Within our renewables business, two of our projects, the Great Bay 2 solar facility located in Southern Maryland and the Sugar Creek wind facility located in Illinois, both achieved full commercial operations last year. Furthermore, two more projects are nearing completion with more than half of Alta Vista Solar's 80 megawatts successfully placed in service with a power purchase agreement with Facebook. And the remaining megawatts are expected to be completed by the second quarter of this year. Our 492 megawatt Maverick Creek wind facility in Texas completed commissioning on 111 of the 127 turbines and has long-term power purchase agreements with General Mills and Kimberly Clark. Maverick was recently recognized by the American Clean Power Association as the fourth largest single-phase wind project in U.S. history. An important lever of growth on the regulated side as we transition to lower carbon energy is our Greening the Fleet initiative. We continue to progress well on our Midwest Greening initiative with the development and construction of three wind farms for a total 600 megawatt capacity as we work to generate and deliver more cost-effective, diverse, and sustainable energy options to our customers and communities. The 150 megawatt North Fork Ridge wind facility has achieved full commercial operation, while the 300 megawatt Neosho Ridge and 150 megawatt Kings Point facilities are anticipated to be placed in service prior to the end of this month. Moving on now to operational excellence. In a mission-critical industry like ours, safety is always an area of focus. And so I'm pleased that we have just passed the impressive milestone of an entire year without a single lost time injury. I'm very proud of our employees and management for continuing to stay focused on safety first, even while we had to transition into a very different work environment given COVID-19, and the priority of keeping our employees and communities safe from the pandemic. The importance of reliably providing the essential services of electricity, water, and natural gas to our customers has become even more apparent during the COVID-19 pandemic. Our diversified asset base and our, and our emergency preparedness highlighted our resilient business model which has meant that our essential services to customers have not been impacted. And financially, as a proof point of how resilient our business model is, the pandemic had a relatively low impact of two cents 
in adjusted net EPS for 2020. With the onset of the pandemic, we focused on cost containment strategies without sacrificing safety and reliability. In the first half of 2020, we announced we are targeting $15 million of savings for the full year. And I'm pleased that we were able to significantly beat that, delivering $24 million in savings for the year. 2020 marked the first full year of contribution from New Brunswick Gas and St. Lawrence Gas. The integration of these two utilities into the Algonquin Liberty family has gone well, as growing the business organically in these two facilities is a key initiative. As with all our previously acquired utilities, we strive to share learnings among our utilities with the aim of driving consistent improvement in our key performance metrics that drive value for our customers and investors. And finally, we remain firmly committed to sustainability through the inclusion of environmental, social, and governance values in our broader corporate strategy and day-to-day -day operations. I want to provide a few highlights from 2020. In March, the closure of our Asbury Coal Generation Facility in Missouri will allow us to reduce annual carbon dioxide emissions by 955,000 metric tons. In the latter part of 2020, we increased our disclosures around sustainability by releasing our first ever climate change assessment report in response to guidelines established by the Financial Stability Board's Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, TCFD. We also released our 2020 sustainability report, which not only outlined our progress on our ESG goals, but provided a higher level of disclosure de details around our nine priority issues. And in 2021, you'll see us adding additional ESG-linked goals to our comp compensation program metrics. Overall, I'm pleased with the progress we've made in 2020 given COVID-19 and all its challenges, and I'm confident we will continue to benefit from our strong, resilient, and diversified business model in 2021. Before turning to Arthur, I want to comment on Storm Uri and the Midwest extreme weather event which occurred last month. First and foremost, our thoughts are with the many people whose lives have been disrupted by the extreme weather events. Since the events began, our teams have worked tirelessly under very challenging conditions to keep our customers and communities safe and to maintain our system reliability and resiliency. I would like to thank our dedicated employees for their teamwork and continual commitment to our customers. In our renewables business, we currently have a total of approximately 2,550 megawatts of wind, solar, and hydro projects in operation, including our 51% interest in three South Texas coastal wind facilities. 
in accordance with our strategy, our portfolio of assets is very diversified across 46 facilities, 15 states and provinces, and seven ISOs. We believe this diversified portfolio will continue to be a major advantage in the face of climate change. In Texas, we have a diversified operating portfolio of approximately 965 megawatts across five locations, two inland and three coastal. This provides the wind resource diversification outlined during our 2020 investor day. The Texas portfolio also benefits from off-take diversification. Maverick Creek, 492 megawatts, and our 51% interest in the East Raymond 200 megawatt facility, both operate under long-term unit contingent power purchase agreements. On the remaining Texas assets in operation, we are hedged using long-term fixed financial swaps with a total combined hedge position of approximately 120 megawatts. We saw no material impact at the coastal wind assets, while Storm Uri did have a major impact on our Senate assets. In total, our estimated exposure remains what we announced earlier in our press release of 45 to $55 million before potential mitigating impacts. We have asserted force majeure at our central facility, given the large-scale market failures and extreme weather events. Storm Uri was very unusual in the level of impact across a very large geography, and temperatures fell to six degrees Fahrenheit near our Senate facility, lower by nine degrees compared to the lowest ever recorded temperature in the last 100 years. Since there may be a dispute and possibly litigation, we do not intend to speculate today on our legal position. There are also ongoing discussions regarding potential Texas government or regulatory intervention, including questions on the $9,000 a megawatt hour pricing. And this could be another mitigation to our estimated $45 to $55 million exposure. In our regulated business, which comprises approximately 70% of our portfolio, we are diversified by modality and operate in 16 jurisdictions. Despite the extreme weather conditions, the regulated service group's electric and gas operations performed well during a sustained period of increased consumption. We did encounter some weather issues in our central region and in accordance with instructions from the SPP, we did some limited load shedding. The utilities did incur incremental commodity costs during a period of record pricing and elevated consumption. The incremental commodity costs incurred by the company are expected to be substantially recovered from customers over an extended period. We do not expect any material financial impact to our regulated business. With that, 
I'll pass it over to Arthur, who will speak to our Q4 and full-year 2020 financial results, as well as the financial impact of the Midwest Extreme Weather event. Arthur? Thank you, Arun, and good morning, everyone. As Arun mentioned earlier, in 2020, Algonquin has again shown its ability to accretively grow earnings through its stable regulated services and long-term contracted renewable power businesses. Our fourth quarter 2020 consolidated adjusted EBITDA was 253.1 million, which is up approximately 10% from the 230.4 million we reported in the previous year. The regulated services group delivered 161.8 million in operating profit in the current quarter which compares to 159.4 million in the same quarter last year. The increases primarily reflect the implementation of new rates and the contribution from ASAL and Belco, which both closed in the quarter. This was partially offset by decreased customer consumption, primarily under central utilities due to warmer than usual weather. The Renewable Energy Group reported fourth quarter divisional operating profit of 102.9 million, which compares to 85.9 million in the same quarter last year. The increase represents generally higher production across our renewable fleet during the quarter. Our Q4 adjusted net earnings per share came in at 21 cents, which compares to 20 cents reported last year. Our results were positively impacted by cost savings implemented during the quarter, a solid performance from our generation facilities and the contribution of the South and the, and the Belco acquisition. But we're partially offset by the unfavorable weather in the central region as mentioned earlier. For the full year, adjusted net ETS came in at 64 cents and compares to 53 cents recorded in the prior year. The 2020 results included a full year contribution from New Brunswick Gas and the St. Lawrence Gas System, which were acquired late last year as well as the implementation of new rates on our Calpico and Granite State electric distribution systems. The results were negatively impacted by decreased consumption resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as significantly unfavorable weather experienced by the central region in early 2020. The delay in the closing of Delco also weighed negatively on our results as compared to our expectations for the year. Despite these challenges, the year-over-year -year growth in adjusted net ETS demonstrates the stability and resilience of our business model. Now I'd like to provide a few more financial updates from the quarter. First, on the COVID-19 pandemic and its financial impacts. We have seen the impacts of the pandemic and consumption patterns continue to ease as the economy reopens. The impact of the regulated services group's divisional operating profit was less than a million dollars in Q4, with full-year COVID-19 impact coming in at 14.7 million, or two cents in adjusted net ETS. As reported previously, in the second quarter, we began implementing cost containment strategies in response to the demand decreases caused by the pandemic. I'm pleased to report that in the fourth quarter, we were able to achieve expense reductions of approximately 6 million, which brings the full year cost savings to 24 million. I'm also pleased to report that all of the reductions were made without compromising on safety, security, and the reliability of the services we provide to our customers. About a third of these reductions occurred naturally to reduce travel and other similar expenses, 
A third was related to timing. And a final third is related to ongoing savings we're able to drive in our business and has been factored into our 2021 earnings expectations. Before turning things over back to Arun, I'd like to provide a brief update on our 2021 guidance. In 2021, our results are expected to benefit from the addition of approximately 1,400 megawatts of new renewable generation capacity completed late last year or early in the first half of this year. In addition, we expect to benefit from the first full year of operations of Belco, Estelle, and the Texas Coastal Wind Portfolio. Factoring in these benefits, in total we expect our 2021 adjusted net earnings per share to be in the range of 71 to 76 cents, which is consistent with what we communicated at our investor day last December. As we mentioned earlier, last month our operations were impacted by extreme winter storm conditions experienced in Texas and parts of the central U.S. The most significantly impacted facility was the Senate Wind Facility, which has a financial hedge in place that imposes an obligation to deliver energy. Because of the unusual market disruption related to the extreme weather events, that facility was required to purchase power for an extended period of time and exception, exceptionally inflated pricing to cover the production shortfalls under its hedge. This is expected to result in a $0.06 negative impact to 2021 basic net earnings per share, which is uh, calculated before any potential recoveries. We view this market disruption on the Senate facilities as unusual and not representative of the ongoing operating performance of this company, and thus have excluded its impacts from the 2021 adjusted net earnings per share expectations discussed earlier. With that, I'll now hand it back over to Arun to outline our growth plans. Thank you, Arthur. Before we close out our prepared comments this morning, I want to give an update on our growth initiatives and capital plan. At our December Investor Day, we updated our five-year capital investment program, which projects $9.4 billion from 21 through the end of 2025 to be spent across our two business groups with the emphasis on regulated services. We have identified projects that make up the entire $9.4 billion, with most of them under construction or in advanced development. This core $9.4 billion does not include any further M&A beyond previously announced transactions or any success from our 3.4 gigawatt pipeline of greenfield opportunities. Over the last year, we have bolstered our internal resources and software tooling to focus even more on greenfield development opportunities that are originated by us. For many of these opportunities, we already have site control and are in the interconnection queue, and we will work to bring this into construction in 2020-23 and beyond. Before we open the lines for the question and answer period, we remain very excited about Algonquin's businesses and prospects. With society and economies working hard to minimize carbon emissions and many countries coalescing around a net zero carbon by 2050 goal, Algonquin's regulated and renewables businesses are well positioned 
to contribute to and benefit from this decarbonization transition. Our three strategic pillars of operational excellence, growth, and sustainability will be a key foundation as we continue to build the business and bring long-term value to our shareholders. We remain well positioned to continue to execute on our growth strategies while pursuing our sustainability goals. Guided by maximizing operational excellence on behalf of our stakeholders, including investors, employees, and customers. With that, I will turn the call over to the operator for any questions from those on the line. At this time, as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Your first question comes from the line of Rupert Murr from National Bank. Your line is open. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Rupert. So if I could, could start with the, uh, the Texas weather event. But you, you discussed the incremental commodity cost of the regulated utility business in the Midwest. What, what's the scale of that incremental cost? And can you talk us through how this will manifest itself in the financial results? Do you you book higher costs and revenues here? Are we going to see an accrual on receivables? Can you just tell us uh, you know, how we should be looking at that, please? Sure. Sure. So, so the total cost is expected to be in the neighborhood of around uh, just over $200 million. And that, that's uh, primarily all of those costs are expected to be uh, passed through to our customers, so, although uh, the, the timing over the pass-through is, uh, is obviously subject to discussions with, uh, with our regulators. We do expect to uh, set up uh, regulatory assets with respect to uh, those commodity costs. Okay. Sorry. Very good. Uh, thank you. And then looking at, at the Texas event and as well as all of the uh, the growth you, you have on, on tap right now, can you give us some thoughts on on the balance sheet strength today, your uh, liquidity position and, and capital needs for, for the remainder of the year to, to fund your construction? Sure, Rupert. Um, so we have a very strong liquidity position. As you know, we've got uh, regular about 1.5 billion of uh, committed uh, credit facilities, and we've also uh, call it beefed up our liquidity position with another 1.6 billion of, uh, of term facilities. So right now we're sitting at about 2.8 billion of available liquidity uh, to us, uh, which, which certainly uh, is uh, sufficient to fund our ongoing capital plans. But, but honestly, we plan to uh, also be in the capital markets. Uh, this year, uh, raising some funding. All right, very good. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you, Rupert. Your next question comes from the line of Sean Stewart from TD Securities. Your line is open. Thank you. Good morning. A um, couple of questions. I see that subsequent to year end, you sold a 32% stake of SL down. 
pretty shortly after acquiring it. Uh, can you give us some of the rationale, especially as it looks like you sold it at a little bit of a discount to the, the initial purchase price? Sure, Sean, uh, good morning. So uh, look, uh, uh, while we are very, very comfortable with uh, Chile uh, as a country risk and, and a business risk, uh, this was our first uh, major uh, you know, investment in uh, Chile. And uh, uh, if you look at the uh, structure of ESAL, it had a strong local partner initially, and uh, through the tendering process, they tendered th their shares. Uh, we always believed that as a first transaction, you know, strategically, it was very important for us to have a, a good, strong local partner uh, who could help us with all kinds of things locally. Um, and uh, so, uh, uh, Toyesca was a very natural choice. We uh, we have known them for a while, uh, and uh, uh, they not only uh, know the local energy and water sector very well, uh, they in fact also own 50% uh, of another water utility in Chile. So they were a very, very natural partner for us. So it was really a strategy that uh, we had in place long before uh, the, the final acquisition of ESAL uh, took place. And no, it was not at, at a discount. Okay, looked just like a modest one in our math, but maybe I'll follow up on that. Um, Second question, uh, page 22 of the MDNA uh, goes through uh, some of the variances in the, um, the quarterly results for the regulated segment. There was an other bucket of $9.9 million that, that goes through several items. I'm wondering, Arthur or Arun, if you can go through some of those elements specifically and in, in, in help us clarify that, that figure and the impact on the results. Sure, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to take a stab at that. And it really is a, is a, a bunch of items in there. One, one of the things is we, we obviously, as you're aware of, uh, uh, contracted services at, uh, at some of our utilities. Uh, so, so that revenue tends to be a, a little bit more uh, more chunky. So, so it's just a matter of, uh, of I guess, timing compared to last year of that revenue. I'm referring to our Fort Benning uh, facility as, uh, as an example. You know, we also have our, our stalls utility uh, that, that, that we actually ended up uh, recognizing uh, uh, some interest in uh, last year that didn't reoccur this year. So that's just a matter of a, of a comparative. Uh, we also had uh, uh, this lower AFUDC uh, capitalization this year compared to last year. So it's just a bunch of, uh, uh, bunch of things all put together. Okay. Uh, thanks for that, Arthur. Uh, that's all I have for now. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Your next question comes from the line of Julian Dumoulin-Smith from Bank of America. Your line is open. <clears throat> hey, good morning, team. Thanks for the time and the opportunity. Um, good morning, Julian. Hey, thank you so much. Listen, uh, a couple different questions for you guys. Maybe to uh, start higher level, um, can you elaborate a little bit more on ITC-PTC extension here? Just how are you thinking about the impact to your business? I mean, obviously, you guys have this um, accelerating opportunity, a number of different counterparties, Chevron, for instance. Just can you elaborate a little bit on how you think about the, pay, the cadence of the opportunity here? Hey, Julian, it's Jeff, and I just, just want to, if you could reiterate the very beginning of that question on the ICC-PTC opportunity, just to make sure that I... That I just, just with the extensions here, I mean, does this, does this 
uh, provide a greater sort of five-year view on, on what you think you can do. I know this is out of cycle with your typical December updates, but I'm just curious with, um, you know, given that we've got these, these extensions of late. Yeah, I think, well, there's a couple of things. Um, we are very keen about the Biden administration and, and where they're going to take things and, and what extensions will go above and beyond what we've already seen. Uh, and obviously the ability to improve some of the economics within our $9.4 billion pipeline to the extent that they're able to qualify for that incremental uh, PTC, ITC. The most significant is the ITC extension, allowing projects to, to come online a little bit later uh, on the solar side. And so we do see upside in the $9.4 billion pipeline on the timing of some of those projects and the ability to bring more projects, which aren't yet secured, but obviously we're always looking the ability to bring more projects in that will take advantage of that full ITC. Also, uh, to add to that, Julian, where, where it should really help us uh, is on our 3,400 megawatt uh, greenfield pipeline. Uh, with, with the extension of the ITCs and, and the PTCs, obviously the economics on those projects will be even uh, better than, than what we had uh, projected before. And again, as a reminder, uh, that 3,400 megawatt uh, uh, greenfield pipeline is above and beyond uh, our $9.4 billion five-year uh, capital plan. Yeah, uh, understood. And, and then if I can go back into some of the details here, I just want to understand, um, the uh, the New York uh, the American Water piece of this. I just can you talk about the confidence in getting that closed here? I mean, I know that there's lots of talk in the state, difficult to discern exactly what's going to transpire there. And, and on the Texas front, just force majeure. Anything specific we should be watching there, and what you're assuming in that six cents? I just want to make sure I understand what the six cents assumes on outcomes there. Sorry, sure. just like the little picky. Sure, uh, uh, Julian. Let, let me start with the New York American Water, right? So, um, I, as you know, there, there is a, there is a lot that that has been uh, very in, in the public realm, uh, and I'm not going to repeat that. But uh, our our conversations and discussions with the uh, uh, commission has continued. Uh, the hearings are set for mid-May. Uh, as you know, uh, Governor Cuomo has come out of the bill. Uh, and one of the elements of that bill is to look at potential municipalization. Uh, we uh, obviously welcome that opportunity to have a public dialogue uh, around the you know, uh, benefits and, and, and not of municipalization versus you know, private uh, uh, participation. Um, and uh, we are still uh, confident that that uh, acquisition will close in uh, 2021. Uh, I mean, just as context, though, I, I, I should point out uh, you know, we did close St. Lawrence Gas in New York State, and that was an approximately 18-month process. So, uh, you know, because of our presence in 16 different jurisdictions, we have a pretty good view of how long different regulatory uh, processes take. And so uh, we believe that we'll be uh, in that uh, uh, kind of a time frame. Your, your second question was that... Was uh, believe around uh, Texas and, and uh, force majeure. Um, yeah, our, our announcement was a full, uh, you know, 45 to 55 million dollar uh, impact before any uh, potential mitigation, right? And so we have uh, already issued a force majeure uh, notice. Uh, I believe the, the, we obviously 
uh, remain uh, confident uh, in, in our in the provisions under which we uh, issued that. Obviously, there's a because it, it could get into dispute or, or a, a litigation situation. I don't want to comment more on that. The other potential mitigation is, as uh, you're well aware, Julian, I mean, there's a lot of discussion going on at the you know, Texas legislature, at the PUC there, uh, around the merits and not about the $9,000 a megawatt hour uh, pricing and whether uh, there's a possibility of part or all of that being rescinded. Uh, we see that as, as another potential uh, mitigation because, uh, you know, by and large, from every commentary out there, there was a large-scale uh, market failure. So there are some of those are some of those mitigations we're uh, thinking about. But th that is not included in the 45 to 55 million dollar uh, number we get, uh, we uh, give in our release. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Julian. Your next question comes from the line of David Cassidy from Raymond James. Your line is open. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, just uh, my first question here, just as it relates to your um, your wind build out uh, in the Midwest. Um, you know, as that customer savings plan, I guess, completes over the next uh, year or so here, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on uh, the potential for for future renewables and the rate base there uh, in the Midwest, and I guess maybe even uh, how storage could could play a role there as well. Hey, uh, David, good morning. So let me ask, uh, answer the first part of the question, and I may turn that uh, uh, over. So uh, in terms of the 600-megawatt uh, uh, wind project, uh, in fact, one of them is already online, uh, North Fork, uh, and the two others, uh, Neosho and Kings Point, uh, they're scheduled to come online, in fact, uh, by the end of this month. So they're you know, clearly very, very advanced. Uh, in terms of uh, 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 being in operations. Uh, we do believe that there's uh, uh, more opportunities out there uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, substituting wind or solar uh, uh, for other forms of ge uh, thermal generation, uh, but uh, I'll turn it over for, for more uh, context. Yes, yeah, so um, good morning, Johnny Johnson. So as part of... Uh, ongoing review of our IRP plans as part of our central uh, organization. We're always looking ahead of what opportunities we have to make sure that we've got the right generation to meet our load. Uh, within our plans at the moment, we have uh, another uh, 50 megawatts of solar to be uh, put into place and then 20 megawatts of more sort of uh, solar and storage on a sort of more of a community type basis. Uh, and then we continue to renew uh, that analysis each year as we go forward. So clearly, we've still got uh, a number of other aging uh, facilities that are part of our generation fleet there. Uh, and as those opportunities uh, present themselves, we'll be putting them into our plan. And, and, and David, I, as you know, I mean, greening the fleet is, is uh, a very uh, key lever that we have uh, where we believe we have unique expertise, uh, especially uh, with our uh, experience around tax equity. Uh, as you know, in Calpico as well, we've added a number of, uh, uh, you know, so solar generation into that rate base. Uh, we are excited about, uh, the, you know, potential opportunities in Bermuda as well, uh, uh, because that certainly is all uh, thermal generation. So this is something that we uh, are continuously evaluating, and, and you obviously continue to hear more from us on, on our uh, Greening the Fleet initiative. 
That's great, caller. Thank you very much. Um, maybe just one more from me. Um, I guess in uh, in Europe, you've started to uh, looks like unearth some opportunities in Spain, and then I guess a few uh, renewable opportunities in Colombia as well. Just uh, curious how you see um, the outlook and the development of projects uh, progressing through Aegis. Um, just any any comments uh, that you could provide there on on the momentum you're seeing in those markets. Sure. So, so I, I do want to give the give context first, right? So. You know, we are by and large a North American energy and water company, right? Uh, and uh, uh, for you know, some years ago, uh, when we acquired our position in, in Atlantica, uh, we also felt the need uh, for a, a development uh, entity uh, that would go after non-regulated international businesses. So the scope of ages is, is just that, uh, you know, non-regulated and international. And the two markets that we have uh, uh, been targeting are Spain and Colombia, because uh, we believe that from a country risk, business risk, uh, potential opportunities, uh, and our own position in those markets, uh, we believe that we have uh, advantages in those markets. Um, as you saw, I mean, we have, in fact, dropped down a couple of those assets in Colombia already into Atlantica. Uh, we are progressing well uh, on a number of those uh, solar opportunities in Spain as well. Uh, and and uh, we'll update you as uh, you know, we make more progress. The other thing I do want to remind you uh, is that none of those projects are part of our $9.4 billion capital plan, so they would be above and beyond. Perfect. I uh, appreciate that. Thank you. I'll get back in the queue. Thank you, David. Your next question comes from the line of Rob Hope from Scotiabank. Your line is open. Uh, morning, everyone. Two uh, follow-up questions for me. Uh, the first is just on the 2021 capital outlook. Uh, the renewable energy at 1.4, 1.75, you know, is uh, is pretty robust there, and over half of or around half of the five-year total spend, you know. Is that just kind of timing of all the investments, or are you baking in some of your, we'll call it, uh, 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 lower probability or earlier life stage investments there? Or is that really just kind of, you know, cleaning up the rest of Maverick, Sugar Creek, and uh, Blue Hills? Among hey, others. Rob. Uh, good morning. So uh, let me try and uh, answer your question, right? So when we were at Investor Day, uh, and we uh, showed you that $9.4 billion uh, uh, capital plan. We also showed that uh, really a large portion of that is what we refer to as already uh, locked and loaded because, uh, as you know, uh, in 2020, that was our largest construction year in our history. Uh, we had around 1,600 megawatts of wind and solar projects that were coming into uh, operation. So basically, when you look at it that way, right, I mean, Sugar Creek, for example, uh, that has now uh, recently come online. Our uh, acquisition of our Texas Coastal Wind uh, facility, which is a fairly, uh, which is in fact the largest acquisition on, on our renewable side, uh, that happened earlier uh, 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 this year. Uh, North Fork Ridge uh, came online, and we have some large projects that are also coming online fairly shortly, including on the regulated side, you've got Kings Point and Neosho. 
Uh, and then uh, on, on the uh, renewable side, you've got Maverick uh, and Alta Vista also coming online. So, uh, so it, it's just that a, a large portion of that 1,600 megawatt construction is really coming in line in the first quarter and in the uh, second quarter. And so that's what accounts for uh, the, uh, you know, uh, a, a large uh, a portion of that capital investment plan happening uh, early in 2021. All right. That's great, Keller. Appreciate that. Uh, and then just as a follow-up, uh, you know, at the investor day, you did say that 2021, uh, you could be looking at mandatory equity uh, uh, instruments uh, to fund the capital plan. You know, is that still the case? And does the Texas, uh, you know, Texas will weigh on your credit metrics a little bit here? But should we assume that uh, you know the equity in the plan that you outlined in December is pretty front and loaded here? Well, it's, uh, it's Arthur. Yeah, I mean, I think you can assume what we laid out as investor day uh, holds with respect to our, our funding plan and. Uh, to your question about mandatory, yes, it's a product that we still uh, are looking at. Uh, and I mean, as, as we think about, uh, you know, we're probably the predominance of, of, of our financing would be, it would probably be through mandatories. But again, we're, we're still evaluating. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Your next question comes from the line of Mark Jarvie from CIBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Um, Good morning, Mark. Yeah, we will follow up on the last question, Arthur, for you, and just in terms of some of that pressure from the higher commodity costs and, and the Texas losses potentially, have you guys spoken to the rating agencies in terms of how they would look through this or deal with this in terms of any hit to FFO to debt, and does that push you to maybe re-engage on the ATM uh, earlier now? Yeah, uh, good morning, Mark. Uh, yeah, no, we, we obviously have spoken to the rating agencies, and uh, it's still early days, as you know, we're not the only company that, uh, that's obviously going through this, I think the rating agencies are, are still evaluating. Obviously, this, this is transitionary, but, but it does uh, does weigh down on the, uh, the credit metrics uh, from the top line. So, uh, I mean, we, we view our capital plan more, more on a long-term basis uh, anyway, so, so I wouldn't look at this uh, as uh, necessarily uh, impacting uh, our capital plan significantly. Okay. And then um, in the fourth quarter, the O&M costs on the utilities had a real material step up year over year, and also from the from the prior quarter. I appreciate that SL and Bell Corp come into the fold now. Can you maybe you know break it down in terms of how much of the higher O&M comes from from the new assets that have been added in, in this quarter, and, and then other factors that might have played into the higher opex uh, for the utility segment? Yeah, I don't have the exact breakdown for for you, but I would say majority of it is due to the new acquisitions. But, I mean, I could just give maybe. Anecdotally, when you think about seasonality, a, a utility like Delco will uh, will earn uh, about 70% of its earnings will come in, in the uh, late spring to uh, call it early fall months, right? So, so it is really seasonally shaped here, and, and uh, from that perspective, you may see a bit of an impact from market. Sorry, so you're saying that maybe top line revenues for Delco are a little lower, but the fixed operating costs are fairly still flat across the quarters. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Your next question comes from the line of Nelson Ng from RBC. Your line is open. Great. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Um, so the, the first question relates to all the uh, development projects you have on the go. So, like, big picture, 
how much do you spend or or expense on on development costs? I, I know some of your Canadian peers spend anywhere from like twenty to to a hundred million. But I'm just wondering where you guys kind of fall within the range. And then secondly, how does that cost get embedded? Is it within your is it at the corporate level or is it in the renewable energy level or I, I know some of it's in Aegis, but can you just give a bit more color on, on that? Sure, maybe I'll, I'll take the Jeff Nelson and I'll take the first question and maybe Arthur can, can take the second question. Uh, but generally speaking, and at an investor day, we did indicate that we would be ramping up our, our spend uh, on uh, new renewables and uh, unveiled the, the 3,400 megawatt early stage greenfield pipeline. Uh, I believe at that time we indicated that there'd be about a two cent drag on, on EPS as a result of those activities. And so that accounts for the, the majority of, of that spend. Okay, so two, two cents per year in general is what we should expect. So that, that, that's the incremental cost with respect to uh, the, all the greenfield development that we're looking at. With respect to your question around uh, how development costs get uh, get booked through, I mean, obviously, we would uh, once a project uh, reaches certain feasibility, it starts becoming uh, capitalized on our books. But like, the early stage projects are undertaken through uh, through Aegis, through that, that development platform, and again, once they reach a, a specific threshold, those, those costs are, are, are then reimbursed uh, back to development. Uh, So Aegis does the U.S. developments as well as international? Like it's all done within Aegis? It's, it's, all, it's all done within one combined development shop. That's, that's located. I mean, we call, we call it Aegis. Maybe Aegis is not the right word for it, but it's, it's really our, our one combined development shop that, that does it. And, and those costs just get reimbursed through our, um, through, through our results once they actually do achieve a, a certain um, Okay, got it. And then my second question relates to weather. Uh, so Q4 weather was warmer than usual, and that was a negative impact. Q1, I guess if you exclude the extreme weather, was probably colder than usual. Like, so would that help your utility earnings in Q1? I guess aside from the fact that you had to pay a lot for commodities. Um, but can you just give some color as to like Q4 was warmer and those negative. Uh, so Q1 was colder, but obviously commodity prices were also a lot higher. So what would be the net impact um, excluding the, obviously excluding the Senate wind uh, facility? Yeah, good morning, uh, Nelson. This is Johnny. I think it's fair to say that so far 2021 has been a bit of a funny old year so far uh, on, the, on the weather front. And actually, if you look at the the start of the year, January, was, was actually a, a much warmer uh, uh, winter than we were expecting. I think it's fair to say that the February has been uh, a bit colder. We're interested to see where March plays out. So in some ways, I would say probably all things considered, it's, it's almost a wash at the moment. Um, uh, and so uh, not a huge, I think, movement either up or down as you look at the various uh, moves that we've seen in the first couple of months of the quarter. Okay, thanks. I'll leave it there. Thanks, Nelson. 
Your next question comes from the line of Ben Fem from BMO. Your line is open. Hi, thanks. Good morning. I, I wanted to uh, follow up on some of the, the questions on the impact on your credit ratings from the Midwest water events. And I understand you're, you're normalizing for earnings for share like, like you should, uh, but, but clearly this gives me some sort of a casual impact. Um, so I'm wondering uh, really with your conversations with the credit rating agency that that 50 million, do you, do you get the sense that they're going to capitalize that in your, your balance sheet or is it going to flow through your FFO or they're just going to completely ignore it and, and normalize it out of their, their credit metric methodology? Hey, Ben, ben it's Arthur. It's early days. Like I said, we're probably uh, uh, only one of the, the few players that, that, got, uh, that are, uh, are working through this. But I mean, I will just leave it at that to say, I mean, we, we target to have cushion in our metrics for, for uh, especially things like this. So, so uh, you know, we're not concerned about uh, being able to absorb it. Okay, so it, it just sounds like S&P hasn't decided what they're going to do yet. They have not, they have not decided. We had, we had early discussions with them. I mean, they, they went back and just say, well, how is this going to impact your credit metrics? Uh, Full transparency in terms of obviously this will have a have an FFO impact, but that FFO impact is, is absolutely transitionary. So uh, you know, I, I guess I'll leave it at that, and I'm, I'm sure we'll be watching it closely over the next few weeks here. And, uh, I'm sure they'll take a position. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, they tend to be more prospective looking than anything. Um, maybe I can quickly turn to your the 2020 guidance, and I, I just want to make sure I. Uh, unpack, or maybe you guys can unpack the, some of the drivers. And on the headwinds, you mentioned the COVID-19 impact, two cents. There's the low average resource conditions, and then some of the acquisitions were delayed. But then on the other side, uh, you were able to surface um, cost savings and the tax benefit, which I think you said is about the five cents or so. So it sounds like it's a, a wash on both sides. So when you look at your, your miss versus beginning of year, five cents, I mean, what like what? What else um, am I missing there in, in the conversation? Yeah, I, I think you've got to. I just don't think it was a full-on watch. I mean, the, the big impact here was was COVID, what was uh, was weather, but but also obviously the, the delay in the acquisition. And as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's a pretty significant seasonality that, that transpires with with, uh, with our Belco uh, utility. So we've closed it. Call, call it a, probably the worst time you can close it for the, uh, during the year, but uh, so that, that, that's certainly weighing on our results. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, your, ne your next question comes from the line of Richard Sunderland from J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Hi. Thanks for taking my questions here. Um, just wanted to circle back to the incremental commodity costs you outlined at the start of the Q&A. Um, the 200 million. Are you able to break that down by uh, jurisdiction and utility? Yeah, so uh, pretty much uh, the ma the majority of that through our uh, our empire um, uh, utility in, in central. Most of our other utilities uh, are on the coast and really didn't get get hit uh, so hard. It's our uh, biggest utility by some way. Um, so uh, it's a mixture of increased natural gas costs for running our gas generation fleet, and then uh, some incremental costs on the electricity side to, to serve our load. 
okay, got it. And then thinking around recovery at a higher level, um, could you run through maybe some, some offsets to the, the cost here? And you know, are you simply thinking about amortization period or, you know, are there other, other considerations in terms of, um, you know, the, the recovery dynamics? I'm thinking in, in two parts, kind of the, the Asbury plant recovery could potentially impact as well in the, the sort of the PISA dynamics at large. So I know thrown out some, some kind of different levers there, but just curious how you see um, the path forward to recovering. Yes, yeah, so certainly in terms of these uh, gas uh, and electricity prices, we have a approved and well-established process through um, our fuel and purchase power adjustment tools or, or FAC. Uh, we file that twice a year uh, on a six-monthly basis. And, and in the normal course of business, uh, as you file that, you then have a six-month recovery period uh, that, that follows that. Uh, because of the, the material nature uh, of these incremental costs, we filed uh, with the Commission uh, an AAO, an accounting order, uh, that will allow us to put those costs uh, onto the, the balance sheet and then have a conversation with the Commission around actually what's the right period of time for us to recover those costs in a way that, that makes sense for us, the business, but importantly makes sense for our customers. You could imagine uh, this would have a, a material rate shock uh, at really not the best time for them. And so uh, we still have those conversations with, with the Commission, uh, but in terms of sort of the process of uh, uh, prudent recovery of those, uh, it's well established and uh, approved and documented already. Got it. And just one last one, if I could. Just any any dates or timing to watch in terms of those those conversations with the commission. Um, so it, it should be between now and April. So our, our fuel adjustment filing is due on the, on the first of April. So uh, we'll be having those conversations really in the next month uh, to agree on the best way to, to handle the the AO. Got it. Thank you for the color. Thanks, Richard. Your final question today comes from the line of Naji Bedun from IA Capital Markets. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Um, just wanted to uh, go back to M&A for, for a second. Uh, I, I guess in a, in a worst-case scenario where the New York water acquisition, uh, you know, doesn't go through, just wondering if you can talk about your, your pipeline of, of acquisitions today and how quickly you can, you can take that capital and, uh, and reinvest it somewhere else. Sure. Uh, so, Naji, uh, uh, as you know, historically we've been a fairly, uh, you know, tra transaction-oriented company. Uh, so, uh, we have done what something in the range of 20 transactions over the last uh, 20 years or so. Uh, we, because of that experience and because of our uh, track record of being able to close uh, our transactions, you know, uh, we're always in the mix. Uh, in terms of uh, discussions around uh, uh, these transactions, whether uh, you know uh, whether it, it be in, in the public realm or not, so uh, that, that's something that we cannot uh, actually pinpoint as, as to exactly when those trans transactions or might happen or if, uh, and that's why, as, as a matter of course, we only include on our you know, uh, uh, five-year capital plan, uh, the, the M&A transactions that we've already announced uh, that may not have closed. So that's why New York American Water is the only one on a five-year uh, trajectory. Uh, to your point, in a worst case, uh, 
uh, New York American Water doesn't close, would we be able to uh, uh, do another transaction? I mean, as over over, we just started our five-year plan, and uh, <laughs> obviously uh, we've got four years, uh, ten months more to go. So I, I, I would be highly confident in our uh, ability to do more uh, M&A transactions. I appreciate that. Timing is difficult, but it sounds like uh, you're confident that uh, that you can find uh, other opportunities fairly quickly. Um, I guess another question is, uh, are there any updates to the uh, Empire uh, rate case, uh, either the appeal process uh, or just any updates we should be aware of on the new rate case that you expect to file? I don't think any uh, material updates to the appeal process is ongoing. Um, could take... Uh, up to a year for that to come through, uh, and we're preparing to, to file our next case in Missouri uh, later on this year. Okay. And, and just one last question on uh, on the Chevron framework uh, agreement. Uh, just any any updates, uh, or, or I guess next steps uh, that you're looking to uh, to uh, achieve uh, this year with Chevron. Sure. So, uh, Navi, as a reminder, I mean, we announced that the, what sometime in the middle of uh, 2020. Uh, and so what we have done since that time is uh, we have, in fact, uh, done some joint procurement work uh, to make sure, uh, uh, you know, we uh, uh, have a safe harbor uh, equipment uh, uh, with us. Uh, we have also filed uh, uh, four interconnection uh, uh, Q applications, so th those are well uh, underway. Um, and uh, we are working through... Uh, in terms of you know contractual uh, contractual structures and uh, starting uh, detailed uh, uh, engineering design on those uh, projects, so we are making good progress. We're happy with the pace of progress we're making, and so you know the question is you know when will we actually be able to announce something uh, that starts construction? You know we're hopeful sometime uh, this year. Okay, that's uh, great, Tito. Thank you. Thank you, Nadia. That concludes our Q&A today. I now turn back to management for closing remarks. Thank you very much. And thank you for taking the time on our call today. With that, please stay on the line for our disclaimer. Our discussion during this call contains certain forward-looking information, including but not limited to our expectations regarding future earnings and capital expenditures, future commercial dates, and the impacts and outcomes of the recent severe winter storms in Texas and the central U.S. This forward-looking information is based on certain assumptions, including those described in our most recent MDNA files on CEDAR and EDGAR and available on our website, and is subject to risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from historical results or results anticipated by the forward-looking information. Forward-looking information provided during this call speaks only as of the date of this call and is based on the plans, beliefs, estimates, projections, expectations, opinions and assumptions of management as of today's date. There can be no assurance that forward-looking information will prove to be accurate and you should not place undue reliance on forward-looking information. We disclaim any obligation to update any forward-looking information or to explain any material difference between subsequent actual events and such forward-looking information, except as required by applicable law. In addition, during the course of this call, we may have referred to certain non-GAAP financial measures, including but not limited to adjusted net earnings, adjusted net earnings per share, or adjusted net EPS, adjusted EBITDA, 
adjusted funds from operations, and divisional operating profits. There is no standardized measure of such non-GAAP financial metrics, and consequently, AQM's method of calculating these measures may differ from methods used by other companies, and therefore, they may not be comparable to similar measures presented by other companies. For more information about both forward-looking information and non-GAAP financial measures, including a reconciliation of non-GAAP measures to the corresponding GAAP measures, please refer to our most recent MD&A files on CDAR in Canada or EGAR in the United States and available on our website. And that concludes the conference call. Thank you, everybody, for joining today. That concludes your conference call. You may now disconnect. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.